before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week, the latest podcast series from The Critic magazine. In a week where backbench MPs and the government clashed over the right to debate coronavirus regulations before they become law, how does the role of the modern MP compare with that of an 18th century honourable member? Were the MPs a check upon, or a rubber stamp for, successive Whig governments, and how diligently did they perform their duties? In this week's Black's History Week podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Walpole in Power, and Parliament and Foreign Policy in the 18th Century, talks to The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about the nature of parliamentary government in Georgian Britain. Professor Black, when we are looking at parliamentary accountability, uh, is that something that really starts with the glorious revolution? Well, I think parliamentary accountability had been a principle as soon as you got Parliament, and there have been difficulties, for example, for Edward I, Edward II, and so on. I think the point about the Glorious Revolution is that it leads to annual parliaments and regular elections. And the combination of both of those means that on the first, it's much harder to avoid parliamentary accountability by, for example, spending periods without elections. So between 1610 and 1621, under James I's reign, there's only a brief parliament in 1614, the adult parliament. Um, between 1681, uh, uh, you know, after that, there's no parliament in the rest of the reign of Charles II. James II calls a parliament in 1685. It doesn't do what he likes. He gets rid of it. Um, so there is, the, there is the issue in those cases of being able to deal without parliament. And if you have regular elections, you get round the issue that had been the case with the Cavalier Parliament of the 1660s, which is that having had one election and liking the results, you just go on with that group of, of MPs. So I would say that accountability wasn't new. What actually the Glorious Revolution brought up was a more regularised situation and system of accountability. And in part, that was designed, I mean, you know, the usual way we see this is, as it were, is designed to weaken the monarchy. Let me stand it on its head, okay? Let me give you a completely radical interpretation. The monarchy was weaker under the old system. One monarch had been thrown out of London, forced to lose, fight a civil war, lost it, and eventually, after a second civil war, lost his head in 1649. That's Charles I. Um, his, uh, sec his, his older son, Charles II, had had chaos with the exclusion crisis at the beginning of the 1680s and a conspiracy against his life. His second son, uh, James II, had actually uh, been kicked out in 1688. Well, that was the last expulsion of a monarch uh, from Britain. So let us say that, in fact, the notion of weakening the power of the monarchy, which is the usual way it is presented, you could turn that on its head and say actually what it did is it stabilised the situation. It made it possible to uh, put pressure on government without actually having to overthrow it and that that was a more stable process. And actually, Graham, can I just bring out an even broader point? Your interest in accountability, uh, to my mind, captures a central issue, problem, and solution in politics, which is that 
of the relationship between um, the necessity to rule, to have government operate, and the question that that government operates best if it is doing so against a measure of, a significant measure of consent. Because if you don't do that, you end up with a situation in which somebody, as it were, issues instructions from Whitehall and nobody pays attention. And, you know, that's the classic weakness of government, is if you press a light switch and nothing happens in Scunthorpe. And the whole nature and strength of government is if people feel that their views are in some way being represented. Now, not everybody's going to feel that, and not everybody's going to be happy, and we've at the present moment, in historical terms, gone to far too naive and childish an approach in that we worry too much when people are unhappy. But you do need to take a significant number along with you, even if you then have to say to the others, right, chums, you know, this is what's happening. There is uh, enough of a consent to keep this going. And I would argue that accountability provides the latter. It provides the sense that you have sufficient consent to enable government to operate. Well, that, that accountability between um, executive and legislature, obviously, as you said in your introductory remarks, also comes from more regular elections. There is a triennial act uh, passed as part of the glorious revolution settlement, which means there must be uh, a general election every three years. That, that's later changed to seven years. But uh, how much difference did that make? By which I mean, uh, you, you, you can call a parliament every three years, but if the parliament doesn't sit for very long, it doesn't necessarily achieve a lot. Well, that's, again, a very interesting point. I mean, first of all, and, you know, as you may know this, I've written quite a lot of books on the subject, and one of them, Parliament and Foreign Policy in the 18th Century, is, I think, quite an important book. Um, several things to say. One, 18th century governments very rarely lost elections, but on the other hand, that didn't mean they weren't very mindful of the need to make their policies work in such a way that they wouldn't lose elections or that they wouldn't lose significant divisions. And those governments that did lose elections, one can think of the Walpole government, which did badly in the 41 election, it falls very early in 42. You know, when you have that situation, in other words, a government does go. Um, so that, I would say, is one point that a parliament doesn't need to be meeting all the time or even much of the time in order for the possibility that parliamentary difficulties would affect government business and the reputation of the government, both domestic and also, and this is a crucial element, international. All of those could lead to a situation in which government does heed parliament, even if it's winning its divisions. So that, I think, is an important point. And again, there's a lot of bad writing on British political history, and a lot of that bad writing is predicated on the assumption that Parliament only operates successfully if it actually wins divisions in which government loses. Well, no, actually, that's silly. I mean, Parliament is having an effect if it leads the government to think carefully about the measures it is going to pursue. So that's point one. Point two as I've written about in that book and elsewhere, um, the decision in the 1690s not to follow what was proposed by some people at the time, which was standing committees of parliament to continue holding an executive role during the parliamentary recess, 
that decision that, as it were, the ex executive powers were not to reside in Parliament, or partial executive powers were not to reside in Parliament, helped to, in fact, make the country workable. I mean, if you think about it, there would have been complete chaos um, if you'd had a situation in which, you know, my major fields are foreign policy and war, if you'd had a field in which all of this was being endlessly debated with grave difficulties in producing some sort of solution. So the alternative, which was in a sense an ex post facto accountability, there is a crisis, the government has to act, then there is a parliamentary uh, consideration of it. And if they get it wrong, there is trouble. Um, and you can think, if you think about the 18th century, for example, naval failures, um, such as the failures to live up to expectations, such as the big failure at Ushant in 1778 and uh, defeats of the British Army in North America during that war, lead to parliamentary hearings which put a lot of pressure on both the military and the government. Whereas, as you know, I mean, if you, you know, people have this idea that somehow we're, we're a more positive or, you know, uh, uh, progressive uh, constitutional system, whatever that means. Um, as you know, it is generally agreed by specialists that there were major failings by both the military and the uh, Blair and Brown governments, and I, I think one could fairly say the Cameron government after it, um, over Afghanistan. And yet, as a cur one colonel pointed out to me, not a single general got sacked and not a single general got, you know, got uh, criticised in Parliament. Um, so I think that the situation in many respects in the 18th century was a greater level of accountability, sometimes rather brutally so, uh, Admiral Bing being shot in 1757, um, but it certainly drove the message home. And I'm keen to explore the nature of um, parliamentary management at a period when um, political parties are not quite as solid as, as, as they have been in the 20th and 21st century. The first half of the 18th century, there's obviously this period of, of uh, after Queen Anne dies, after 1714, there's this period of Whig domination, Tories are tainted uh, rightly or wrongly, of being Jacobites, and the, the you know the Whigs seem to have such a dominant position. I'm just wondering how party management works at a time where, when the opposition seems so so fragmented and, and weak. Well, first of all, uh, parliamentary management had to be different because. Um, as you say, party structures were not as formalized, and many members of parliament, both in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, presented themselves as independent. So that made management more difficult or more of an issue. Um, on the other hand, there, it was also in a way easier. First of all, it was easier in the House of Lords. The House of Lords was a relatively small body. Uh, I mean, you know, today it's massive and full of inconsequential nobodies who've been promoted up. Um, in the 18th century, it in fact was tended to be full of people of consequence, uh, uh, major aristocrats, obviously, um, all the English ones, uh, a representative group of the Scottish ones, um, leading clerics and um, leading jurists. Um, 
So most of those people were not members of any political party, as we would now call it. There weren't party membership lists at all in the early 18th century. Uh, But, you know, there were groups that tended to be more open to the influence of government. Shall we say that most bishops were so convinced of their value to their flocks that they would do anything to please the government in order to get promoted up the church hierarchy? Does that make that point clear? So they could usually rely on all the bishops, bar one or two mavericks, to back them. The 16 Scottish representative peers usually backed the government, and then on t- many of them helped by the inducements of large amounts of money. So the bribery that's doshed out to Scotland from the English taxpayer today had more than its parallels in the 18th century. And then on top of that, if you were a peer who was pursuing a military career or a career in the household, royal household, you might well find it convenient to back the government that the king had confidence in. And if you didn't, as happened in 1733 and 1734 during the excise crisis for the Walpole government, you could expect, once Sir Robert Walpole had persuaded George II to do this, to lose your military positions or to lose your household positions. So that gives the government, unless it is really in a mess, and sometimes it is really in a mess, a solid position in the House of Lords, which is why when contentious business comes up, highly contentious business, which government is afraid of losing, as in the Treaty of Utrecht of 1713 or the Great Reform Act of 1832, there is pressure to threaten the creation of more members of the House of Lords in a way that would be inconceivable with the politics of high integrity we see in modern Britain. Right, fine. Now, the House of Commons um, is a larger body, and you've got many of the factors we've already talked about, the uh, possibility of Um, patronage, of preferment playing a role, and of course Sir Lewis Namia famously wrote about that in the early um, 1760s, and there's the famous phrase from Walpole, every man has his price, but as I tried to show in my book Walpole in Power, in practical terms, um, what Walpole had to do was devise a set of policies that would please people. In other words, Yes, some people were quite happy to be rewarded for their vote by some or other corrupt method, you know, let's say making them a member of the House of Lords, to use a modern example. But uh, what was more common was for them in the first place to be convinced by government policy. And Walpole's policy, in many senses, took on board a lot of Tory themes in terms of keeping the land tax down, in terms of... Um, uh, keeping Britain at peace um, in terms of not further infringing the position of the Church of England, all of which were policies that pleased um, the average country gentleman and that, as it were, therefore appealed to a broader constituency of support. And I would argue that that is crucial, that um, that in practical terms, um, if you wanted your business to go through, it was important what business you were proposing. And on the nature of business, is this a time of mostly uh, private acts or, so that, or, or you know, enclosure acts very specific to uh, um, you know, a local a local improvement or a local change, or are we looking at a lot of of government legislation coming forward? Right. Well, again, that's a very good question. Generally, the session was divided very crudely into two parts. 
at the beginning of the session were the, as it were, the what you might call the high holy days. In other words, the debate on the uh, address to the Crown, which in a sense was a motion of confidence in the government, in which uh, government policy would be reviewed across a wide range, and then the votes to do with the raising of public finances and with the uh, Mutiny Act, which enables the army to keep going, etc. After the major business is, is passed, then, as you correctly say, you move on to a lot of private uh, me uh, measures um, and, you know, measures, we, we call them private, they might be put forward by, um, as it were, corporate or semi-corporate bodies, Turnpike Trust is an example of the second, uh, corporations, urban corporations of the, of the first, and at that period, the membership, of the, sorry, the attendance of the House of Commons tends to fall. I mean, remember, the MPs aren't being paid, uh, those of them who aren't particularly wealthy don't necessarily have anywhere to stay in London other than what they're, where they're paying for, and attendance often drops quite considerably in that period. So it depends upon which period you're covering. One of the things that's very interesting is you can get a tone of the House of Commons by obviously reading its um, reading its reports, though, you know, there's a whole chapter by me on sources and reports in my book on Parliament and Foreign Policy, in which I go into the deficiencies of things like uh, the COBIT. But then if you look at the other sources, and I try to draw attention to where you can find them, for example, reports of foreign envoys, foreign envoys often attended uh, meetings of the House of Commons where there would be uh, matters of concern to them and also what I've referred to as the High Holy Days. And then on top of that, uh, you have the private correspondence of MPs writing to friends or relations. So I made quite a lot of use, for example, of the Tucker Papers, where he's writing to his brother. Um, all of these provide you with an actual flavour of Parliament, which is very, very instructive. And of course, one of the things about these people is that many of them could write very well. And uh, you, you made an interesting comment earlier, which I just want to pick up on. You, you referred to uh, some MPs who weren't so well off. Uh, MPs, of course, aren't paid until the beginning of the 20th century. So there, there's an assumption that most of them are uh, either in, 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 in the pay of their sponsors or uh, are of considerable independent means. Uh, were there nevertheless in the 18th century a, a significant number of MPs of, of relatively uh, modest means? Um, a, a, there were, uh, both uh, from the, some of the uh, um, gentry, um, because after all, you're talking about having to support yourself in London and you're not going to be living in a cardboard box. And also as the representatives of poorer boroughs. So both those groups, but also there is a great problem in the 18th century that many people live beyond their means and there isn't the uh, ease of credit that there is today with plastic money. Um, and uh, quantitative easing. Um, so MPs run into debt. I mean, in my biography of Pitt the Elder, I discuss how he has to be helped out at least three times from very significant levels of debt. And of course, Pitt the Elder is a second son. And as you know, the system of primogeniture, and his elder brother, uh, who is also an MP, uh, who is a man singularly without talent, 
Um, so I think he ends up in the House of Lords, doesn't he? But he's a man singularly without talent. Um, he uh, has the money, but, but William Pitt the Elder does not, and then he has a large family, etc., etc. And again, you see the same thing in other families. I mean, Henry Pelham, um, uh, Henry Fox, they're both uh, uh, young, younger sons, and this obviously means they do not have significant sums. Now, in each of those cases, their elder brothers are in Parliament. Um, so you have one brother who's got a lot of money, though Henry Pelham's older brother, the Duke of Newcastle, there's a book on his finances by Kelch, which shows that he runs into significant debt. Um, so you've got a society in which debt is an enormous problem, and you do not improve your debt situation uh, by going to spend, stay in the most expensive place in, London, uh, in the country, which is London, and then on top of that, not being in a position to look after your estates whilst you're away, or your interests whilst you're away. Mm, and uh, there are records, of course, of, of business of uh, Parliament during the 18th century, but it was considered a breach of parliamentary principle to report the actual words spoken in debates until the, until the 1770s. Why was there this determination in Parliament that their proceedings couldn't be reported in detail? Well, there was an anxiety, I and mean, this goes a long way back, the view that the... Um, that the government uh, would, as it were, come down on um, MPs who expressing sort of um, comments that the government might regard as seditious. And, you know, that's a sort of viewpoint that goes right back to the medieval period. The practicality, as I've shown, is that if you're looking at, for example, what concerns me most, which is foreign policy, you, which was regarded as a highly sensitive issue. So, for example, during the parliamentary debate in the House of Lords over the um, uh, Falklands Islands crisis, um, you know, the House was cleared of strangers because allegedly there was somebody there that they were, you know, that they felt shouldn't have been taking down what was being said. Um, but the practicality was that you've got very good accounts if you put them all together. I mean, you've got to be careful of this. I mean, one of the things I did was only um, timed what we knew, speaking slowly, I don't generally speak slowly, but speaking slowly, I timed the known speeches that we had for several debates against how long these people were known to have spoken for. Because if you were a major speaker, what were known as one of the lions, let's say in the 1780s, uh, Fox, Burke or Pitt, people would record. They'd say, you know, Mr. Burke spoke for one and a half hours, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and you would realize that even if Burke, who in fact spoke relatively fast, even if Burke had been speaking extraordinarily slowly, there's no way that this would have taken anywhere near one and a half hours. So it is a problem that many accounts clearly are those that are only summative. But on the other hand, um, you know, you can also in some cases get some quite long ones and there are a number of reasons for that. Some people spoke from notes and then, because they wanted posterity to be absolutely sure of the, their brilliant wisdom, uh, they handed the notes to one or other of the parliamentary reporters. There's um, a period in the 18th century which... Um uh, modern history uh, seems to ignore from a legislative point of view, which is to say uh, you've got the legislation like, like the Act of Union uh, at the beginning 
uh, of the 18th century, and then by the 1790s you've got lots of interesting legislation, Catholic relief, and, and, and so on. But apart from um, acts which have got a rather bad name for their relation to the American colonies, so they're like the Stamp Act and the, the, the Declaratory Act and so on, um, history now doesn't reflect a great length on major legislation passed for the bulk of the 18th century. Is that fair, do you think? Or well, no, we I think there are some good that? works out there. I mean, you've got to distinguish between what's being taught and you know i'm quite happy to have a discussion with you about the lackluster nature of a lot that's being taught but there is good stuff there i mean there's an excellent book by the late paul langford on the excise crisis of 1733 there are a number of good articles about the legislation passed by the stanhope's uh, sunderland ministry of the late um 17 teens there's some good work on the reform tendencies of the late 1740s early 50s there's a book on the jewish naturalization act of 1753 um there are i mean you know there's all all sorts of stuff that's been published on the legislation to do with the government and administration of india so no i wouldn't say that i would say actually that the scholarship has often been excellent I would say the subject as a whole is misunderstood now because the 18th century for many years has been taught largely or discussed largely in terms of identity politics. So quite frankly, um, you know, you would probably find at the present moment, if you wanted to get a research grant, you would stand a better chance of doing so in the 18th century on, let us say, uh, people who were cross-dressers than if you wanted Wanted to actually study Parliament. And the point about that is not some sarcastic remark on my part. We'll leave that to one side. It's a much more substantive part. When we actually had the major constitutional issues of the 20 teens, and listeners will have different viewpoints on what has happened, what was striking was how poor the quality of discussion was about constitutional history among those who were supposedly educated. Um, you know, so you know, whether we're talking of jurists or commentators or politicians or bureaucrats, um, we're talking about people that had been through often senior universities and who, quite frankly, had the most appalling lack of understanding. And, I mean, I found this very striking. I mean, I tried to, you know, I was rung up by the BBC, um, first of all, over the um, the Syria issue. Uh, you may recall that, and Parliament. And, and, you know, I tried to explain to them the nature of the constitutional arrangements between uh, uh, between Parliament and government over foreign policy, and they weren't interested. They, they just wanted some glib remark, uh, critical or praiseworthy of the government, preferably the former. Then when we got on to the uh, Supreme Court and the House of Lords, again, the BBC rang me up and I tried to explain to them that a constitution is a political practice as much as or more than a set of legal formulations and that the nature of the political practice is that it changes and that therefore it is not necessarily the case that jurists who are looking back, as it were, are the ones that are best placed to interpret it. 
Well, again, they didn't want that because they wanted some simple account. And um, so I have to say, one of the things that strikes me is that the 18th century is very significant. Uh, It's very significant for issues of public politics. If you think about the current furore, people will have different points of view who are listeners about what they think about uh, what should or should not be uh, discussed with reference to the slave trade in the 18th century. Figures like Coulson, who of course was a member of parliament, or figures like Robert Clive, who also was a member of Parliament. Um, What is striking, though, is that an informed understanding of the period, which tries to contextualise it, which talks about the circumstances of the age, has been swept aside in public debate. And I fear, although there are still good academics out there, I would be very wary of going to a university which discusses the past in terms of decolonisation, because that ipso facto is assuming an outcome rather than understanding the ambiguity and nuances of the past. Well, Professor Black, you've uh, done as much as anyone in in, in recent decades to uh, improve our understanding of uh, the 18th century. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much as ever uh, for your insights. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, obviously listeners will have their own time pressures, but I think my book on Walpole in Power would interest people for trying to look at the interaction of policy, ideology, and political management. And the issues then are still the issues today. And if somebody wants a more, you know, as it were, technical would be the wrong word, but a more more difficult, again, would be the wrong word, but a, a higher level of complexity, they might look at my parliament and foreign policy in the 18th century. But thank you very much. No, thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.